Tonight we are wrapping up our faith focus as we consider evangelism. Uh, remember Pastor Jason spoke this morning on being united in our mission. That is the mission of God, what God is doing in the world to reconcile all things to himself. And tonight we are going to dive a little deeper into evangelism. How is God reconciling all things to himself? He's doing it through his son, through the gospel. And what do we get to do in, in that, that mission of God is we get to declare this gospel, to share it with others, to be evangelists. That's what we're going to consider tonight. So if you have a Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn to Acts 17. We're going to be a little ambitious tonight. We're going to read through this whole chapter. It's pretty long, but I'm going to try to move rather quickly as we go. I want to look at Acts 17 and learn from the Apostle Paul, from his ministry, ways in which we can grow in our own personal evangelism. I feel a little ashamed when Jason mentioned that he thinks that I might perhaps be a good evangelist. I don't feel like I'm a very good evangelist at all. Uh, so instead of just telling you stories of my failures, mostly in evangelism, I thought it'd be better just to look at Paul and look at his life. So Acts 17, uh, this is in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey. And he is visiting these uh, cities up in Macedonia, and then he'll circle down into uh, Athens in the, the country of Greece. So first we'll start in uh, Thessalonica, and then journey with Paul to Berea, and then end up in Athens. So what I want to see as we go through this chapter together is nine ways that we can grow in our own evangelism as we look at the life of the Apostle Paul. So starting there in verse 1, chapter 17, we read this, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Here's our first point tonight. To grow in evangelism, we need to grow in our knowledge of the gospel and of the scriptures. So grow in our knowledge of the gospel and of the scriptures. You'll notice here in Thessalonica what Paul does in verse 2. He immediately goes into the synagogue. There's a redemptive historical priority to this, that the gospel is good news, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. Right, that Paul wants to proclaim to them that this Messiah came from their lineage and so they ought to be the first to receive him. There's a priority there. There's also a practical component. You think of Paul as a Jewish person and the Jewish synagogue being the place where the Old Testament scriptures were studied and read. It would make sense that this is the first place you'd go as you're making your way through the Roman Empire. So Paul goes in, verse 2. And then notice what he's doing in the synagogue. It says he's reasoned with them from the scriptures. And verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Paul's focus here is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. This is what Paul is seeking to explain and to prove or to demonstrate from the scriptures. And why is Paul so adamant about this? It's because this is the heart of the gospel, that Jesus came to die in my place and then to rise again 
to bring us forgiveness. All of this that was promised to us in the scriptures. And so Paul is going to great length to focus on this message. And think about these verbs here for a minute. This idea to reason, to make rational arguments for something. So if A, then B. Or if the Bible says X, then why do you believe not X? Right? To reason with people. If in Isaiah it says that the Messiah will be crushed for our iniquities, then the Messiah must suffer and die. This is what Paul is arguing here uh, to the Thessalonians. So he's reasoning with them. He's also explaining to them. This word means to open or to reveal something. It means to declare the big picture. Or another way to say it is to connect all the dots. Right, this is what Jason uh, said to us this morning, this idea of telling this story, the greatest story ever told. And that's part of our evangelism, is to declare it and then to explain it. That all of our understandings of our own sin is explained to us in the scriptures. And that because of our sin, we need a savior. So Paul's going to great lakes to explain this. And he's also proving this word here means to lay before someone or to demonstrate as authoritative evidence. This is what Paul is doing as he's opening up the scriptures. He's proving from this authoritative revelation from God that the Messiah had to suffer and to rise again. You think about what Dave, uh, Dave Hinckley preached last Sunday for us, this uh, this theme of apologetics, or this, this topic of apologetics, that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's connecting all of these apologetic-type arguments. He's connecting them with the Scriptures, and he's bringing it home and saying, this Christ who died and who has risen again, this is the Messiah. He is the Messiah, and we need to believe in him. The aim of all apologetics is to unite with evangelism on the person and the work of Christ. So to be good evangelists, we need to grow in our knowledge of the gospel and of the scriptures. So one of the things that means for us is that whatever we're doing in our Christian lives, whether it's Bible study or prayer groups or reading big books on doctrine, right, all of these things should fuel our evangelism. Sometimes people like to, to pit these two things against one another. Somehow, all of this is antithetical to going out and sharing our faith. But we need to understand that they go together, that our knowledge of the gospel and our knowledge of the scriptures should be the fuel that's causing us and equipping us to go out and to share more, to grow in our knowledge of the gospels and of the scriptures. Here's the second thing. Expect evangelism to take time. Expect evangelism to take time. Notice in verse 2, it says that Paul spent three Sabbath days. In other words, for three consecutive weeks, this is probably at least, it's probably even longer than that, but for at least three consecutive weeks, Paul is in the synagogue and he's reasoning with them about Jesus. And we can assume that it's not just on Saturday that he's in the synagogue on the Sabbath reasoning with them about Jesus, but this is happening all throughout the week as well as people would gather in the synagogue for studying of the Torah. 
Most evangelistic opportunities come as we take the time to explain and demonstrate from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Evangelism is not a one and done thing. So we need to expect that evangelism will take time. And this is especially true as we interact with people who have little exposure to biblical stories and general theological concepts like sin or grace or salvation. And if we're going to excel in our evangelism, we need to be ready to take the time it requires to reason with people. From firsthand experience, I've spent several years trying to get to know, befriend uh, students on campus from uh, Muslim countries. And oftentimes, these friends would invite me over for dinner, which was great. Um, I'd go, and they would take two, sometimes three hours just to get dinner ready. They'd say, come at six, but dinner wouldn't really happen until nine. Uh, And it it was good time spent talking, uh, but usually nothing too deep. We'd finish dinner, maybe by 10, and all of a sudden, they would open up and ask me all kinds of questions about the Bible, Jesus, faith, and several times just spending time in their apartments until 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning. Now, I'm thinking, I'm going over for dinner at 6, I'll be home by 7.30, right? This is, this is good. But coming home at 2 a.m. and realizing it took five, six hours to then finally get to that point where they would ask about Jesus. So we need to expect our evangelism to take time. Moving on here in the text, verse 4, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So here's the third thing. In our evangelism, we need to expect mixed reactions. We need to expect mixed reactions. Notice here the different responses. Verse 4, some were persuaded and actually joined Paul and Silas. But then in verse 5, the Jews were jealous. And so what did they do? They formed this mob. They set the city in an uproar. They even attacked this man named Jason. This guy's presumably a, a recent convert under Paul's ministry. You think, well, why was there such a public outcry? Well, notice how verse 3 and verse 7 go together. Paul is reasoning, explaining that Jesus suffered and died and that he rose from the grave, proving that he's conquered death. And what this means is that Jesus is now the Messiah. He's the God-man who came to rescue us from sin and death. But it also means that this Jesus is then the true king, not Caesar. And the people understood this. So as we faithfully share the gospel, we should expect some kind of a response. The response is not always going to be warm reception. To some, it will be an aroma of life. To others, it will be a stench of death, a direct challenge to the worldly authorities. 
I think sometimes in evangelism, we can get discouraged if people don't accept what we're telling them, right? And if they don't accept it, we think, well, I'm just not going to share. Like on the other side, what, what I've noticed is that as, as you do share this message and people respond with hostility, it, it just makes it that much harder to then go out the next day and, and share your faith. So in both cases, sometimes we can just be lulled to sleep and think, there's just really no point, right? There's no point in sharing this message. Either some are too hard, they're just not going to believe it, or those people, they're going to hate me, so why share it? But our responsibility in evangelism isn't to manipulate people that we're talking to, but rather to be faithful to the message. We should expect mixed reactions. Some will be persuaded, and we need to be encouraged by that, and we need to expect that, that some people will hear and believe. But even as some may be persuaded, some are going to see this as an assault on their secular freedom. But either way, we need to be committed to share this message and expect mixed reactions. The text moves on. Now Paul and Silas have left Thessalonica and now they're heading down to this city about 50 miles away in Berea. Verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, and not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Here's a fourth thing for us to grow in our evangelism. Pray that the Lord would give people a hunger for his word. Pray that the Lord would give people a hunger for his word. Here we see some of the repeated themes that we had just looked at. Paul's in the Jewish synagogue. He's doing exactly what he did in Thessalonica. He's reasoning, he's explaining, he's demonstrating that this Jesus is the Christ. But then we see one major difference. Luke tells us those in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They were more noble. But rather than the standard Greek definition for nobility, something like being born into a well-ordered family or perhaps having an open mind to truly understand the, the nature of the cosmos of the world, Luke tells us that the true source of their nobility is this, that they receive the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. In our evangelism, there is perhaps no more necessary thing than this, that we would pray for the Lord to give people a hunger to know him as he's revealed himself in his word. That's one of the things I constantly have to remind myself as I'm heading to campus or going to, to talk with friends, is I can share anything that I want, but unless the Lord is at work, they're just simply not going to receive it. So we need to pray and understand that our prayers in this way are a necessary part of our evangelism. And it's one of the most encouraging things. I'm sure you maybe can think of examples or experiences like this, but when you see the Lord working in someone's life and their heart, 
you just kind of get this supernatural confidence, right? That they come to you and they ask you questions. They're asking you tough questions. But you, you quickly realize, it doesn't really matter what I say. If I point them to the word, God is going to use his word to do his work. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. So we need to pray that the Lord would give people a hunger for his word. Now this episode in Berea ends similar as that in Thessalonica. The, the people, well actually from Thessalonica, the Jews came down and they agitated the people there in Berea. They stirred them up. So much so that Paul was again forced to leave this city. So now, instead of traveling just 50 miles to the next city, he goes about 200 miles all the way down to the city of Athens. So here we are in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Here's a fifth, a fifth way to grow in our evangelism. Be provoked by sin and idolatry. Be provoked by sin and idolatry. I'm convinced, just looking at my own life, but I'm guessing for you as well, that one of the greatest reasons we don't evangelize more is that sin and idolatry don't provoke us like it should. We're just simply not stirred up by it, provoked by it. Here's a thought experiment. Ask yourself this. When was the last time you were provoked by something? To be angered by something. That's another way to say that, that word provoked. What's, what's something that stirred you up to the point of anger? I'm guessing, probably for all of us, it's not too hard to look back and see something. It probably had something to do with either COVID or politics. One of those two, I'm guessing. And when that thing, whatever it was, stirred you up, I'm guessing it caused you to want to do something about it. Maybe you felt hopeless, but it probably at least made you want to do something. I'm so mad at this, I just wish I could do this. Well, I'm guessing it's probably a sad reality for us that when we think back in our lives, we probably can't think back to a time when sin or idolatry has provoked us so much that it caused us to get up, cross the street, or go to campus, or wherever it might be, and talk to people about Jesus. Sin and idolatry need to provoke us. It, it provoked Paul as he was in this great city of Athens. I think about all the beautiful architecture. Paul's walking around this city. He's waiting for his friends to come back or to come join him. He's, instead of seeing all of this and just being wowed and amazed by it, instead, Paul's walking around and he gets provoked by it. So do you want to grow in your personal evangelism? If the answer is yes, pray and ask God to give you eyes to see sin and see idolatry for what they really are, that your heart would break over these things, and that instead of responding with despair or cynicism or disdain, that instead we would respond with boldness, with courage, to do the most necessary thing, and that is to share Christ with lost and dying people. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul reflects back on his ministry there in Thessalonica, and he reflects how they had turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. This was the fuel for Paul as he's visiting these cities. This desire to see people turn from their sinful idols and to serve the living and the true God. 
So we read on in verse 17. So Paul, he reasoned in the synagogue. Same, same word, same idea. He's doing similar things. He's in the synagogue. He's reasoning with the Jews, with the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean." Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Here's the sixth thing. Look and pray for opportunities to talk with people who will listen. Look and pray for opportunities to talk with people who will listen. Notice here Paul moves from the synagogue into the marketplace. He's no longer just talking with Jews and God-fearers who would have been in the synagogue, but now he's engaging with the philosophers. And then notice what happens. It says that they, these philosophers, they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus. This is the place in the city of Athens, the hill of Ares. Ares was a Greek god. The other name for Ares was Mars. So this is Mars Hill. This is right where even in the city today, you can see the Acropolis up on the mountain. And just below that Acropolis was Mars Hill. So they brought him to Mars Hill. And they wanted to hear more about Paul, what Paul was saying. Now imagine for a moment, Paul wakes up that morning. I, I doubt Paul knew that he would end up in the center of one of the most influential cities in the world, talking with the most influential minds of his day, on Mars Hill, sharing Christ. I don't, I don't think he knew that was going to happen. So how, how did Paul get there? Well, he got there because he saw a door and people took him and said, hey, there's more people that want to hear what you're talking about. It's one of the things I pray probably most often, Colossians 4 to God, open a word, open a door for the word that I may declare the mystery of Christ to this people and... Lord, if you open a door, would you give me the courage to walk through it? Right here, Paul is walking through these open doors. So we need to look for and pray for these kinds of opportunities. Now, one caveat here, this doesn't mean we just simply move on from people if they don't seem interested in, in what we're saying. We often need to persevere and be patient with people. It's not an either-or, but a both-and, that we would patiently and persistently share with those who seem closed or hard, even as we look for opportunities for those who are eager to listen. Verse 21, we see that there's Athenians and foreigners who loved to hear these new ideas. It's a good reminder for us that just as in Paul's day, there were foreigners in this city of Athens as foreigners come into these new cities and new cultures, they're usually much more open than the average people. So if it was true for Paul in his day, how much more so for us? One of the greatest opportunities for evangelism and gospel witness is to engage in those in our midst who are from other countries, other cultures, who are open to learning about the faith that has so shaped our society. So where are the open doors? Pray for them, look for them. 
Here's the seventh thing from this portion of the text. Be clear on the gospel. This is really just a way of restating number one, but we need to hit it again to be clear on the gospel. This is so important for us in our evangelism. It's so easy to get sidetracked into philosophical speculation or cultural issues. Verse 18, it says, Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He's standing in the midst of these great philosophers. Think of all the rabbit trails Paul could have gone down. And yet his focus was Jesus and the resurrection. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1 that this message is foolish to the wise, to the Greeks, and folly and weakness to the Jews. But this is Paul's message. This is what he's aiming at. He's being clear on the gospel. And notice in verse 18, as he's preaching this gospel and proclaiming it, look what they call him. They call him a babbler. The word here in the Greek is is referring to this idea of a chicken that would peck at seed. It's this idea that Paul is just pecking at these these seeds of truth. He doesn't really understand what he's talking about. He's just a chicken that's, that's pecking around, thinking he knows what he's talking about. So they call him this babbler. They call him a stranger, an, an irrelevant outsider. Right? And now you can imagine the temptations Paul's probably thinking. You know, if, if I just lighten up on this resurrection thing, the Greeks will probably gladly embrace this and the Jews probably won't hate me as much. Right? And yet Paul was committed to this message of Christ crucified. It was a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So here's the bottom line for us. Unless we have a firm resolve to hold to the clear message of Christ crucified, we will melt in the face of whatever opposition or whatever hostility, or whatever mocking is going to come our way. The gospel, and the gospel alone, is what saves. And so we must be clear and make that our primary aim in evangelism. So be clear on the gospel. Moving on here, verse 22, Paul now addresses the Areopagus. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Here's an eighth thing for our evangelism seek to know your audience. Seek to know your audience. Paul's address here in Acts 17 is different in form from what he had done before. Previously, we saw he's in the synagogues. He's reasoning. He's demonstrating from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. He's appealing to the authority of the scriptures. Now here, in a sense, Paul is taking several steps back. He's addressing these pagan philosophers. He's not talking to God-fearing Jews. But even in this in, in this case, Paul's emphatically not preaching a different gospel. It's the same gospel, but he's aiming here for intelligibility, for understanding. He's not trying to change it. He's not trying to radically contextualize it to make it something new. Now, he makes clear in his other writings that the same gospel is foolish to one and weakness to the other, 
And he's not lessening either of these things. One author describes Paul's approach here, and I like this description. He calls it subversive fulfillment. What this means is that as Paul is preaching to these pagan Gentiles, he's appealing to their religious longings, but he's not willing to let them keep their pagan and idolatrous trappings. That they worship, Paul's willing to grant, but what they worship, this is a different story. And so Paul is seeking to subvert their religious and idolatrous worship. Subvert means to to turn it upside down. He's subverting it. Verse 23, what therefore you worship as unknown, this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. And how does he do it? This is what he says. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he, this God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. But Paul went out from their midst. Some of the men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius and others with them. The God that Paul here is proclaiming to these Athenians is wholly different from the pagan deities that fill the city. He's subverting everything that they thought about what God is and what worship is really like. That this true God, Yahweh, he's the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in all of these temples made by man which fill the city of Athens. Paul has just walked around and seen all these temples. This isn't that God. God is different from your gods. He's self-sufficient. He doesn't depend on mankind. And so here's the rub, Paul's saying. If this God is true, and he is, then all of your religion is false. It's no good. It's pointless. But he goes even further. It's not just pointless. It's worse than that. He says, you're going to be judged for rejecting the true God. Verse 30, so this God, this true God, he commands you to repent. Why? Because he's coming back. Jesus is coming back, and he will judge the world according to his righteous standard. And so if you repent, if you believe in this God, then everything you thought about religion It's going to be subverted. It's going to be turned upside down. But at the same time, your spiritual longings, your religious desires, they will be fulfilled 
because they're going to be redirected to the true God who died to cover our sin and was raised to give us new spiritual life. This for Paul is evangelism in a pagan context, even religious ones. He's seeking to subvert at the same time that he's showing Christ fulfills. And so for us, in a nutshell, all of this is to make this point that we need to know our audience. We need to know our audience, how to communicate this one true gospel message intelligibly, understandably, as we're doing so, subverting old idolatrous practices. We're we're not seeking to just add Jesus on to whatever people already believe, but rather to subvert those things. But even as we do that, we also need to show people how this gospel is good news for you right now. Right? This isn't just some philosophical idea that we're talking about, but this is good news, that it fulfills our deepest hopes and our greatest dreams, that this good news connects with all of the questions I have about human depravity and my desire for an afterlife or heaven. And this is why culture matters. Culture matters because culture is a way of trying to answer these kinds of questions. Where did I come from? Where am I going? What brings meaning to my life? Culture matters, but, and this is so key, the culture doesn't dictate to us what the gospel is. Rather, it's the other way around. The gospel transcends all cultures. And because that's true, it's always going to subvert even at the same time that it fulfills. This is what Paul's doing in Athens, in the heart of this great Greek and Roman city. Now, there's a lot more we could say and dive into on that theme, but just in a sort of a high-level view, we need to understand our audience. Who are we speaking to? What do they believe? What do they think about God? What do they understand or think about their own sin? We need to show them, connect the dots, show them, that Jesus really is the Christ, that he came to die for their sin, and he rose again. All right, now I'm going to cheat and add one more final point, point number nine. This is actually from Acts 18, but we're not going to go and read that whole section. But one more point. It's so good for us to see this. Here in Acts 18, Paul's in Corinth. He's in the midst of all kinds of persecution. And here's what the Lord says to him in verse 9. He says, Paul, do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. So Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So here's point nine for our evangelism. Be encouraged. God's sovereign plan is unfolding to save his people, and he's using us to do it. So be encouraged. In our day, as hostility toward Christianity and the church grows, let us not lose heart. We need to be encouraged to keep sharing the gospel, keep reasoning with people, keep explaining, keep demonstrating that God's word is trustworthy and true. We need to declare that this is the greatest story ever told. And as we're doing so, to be reminded that God has many people who are his. And so, don't be afraid Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Stay longer than you might have planned. Keep sharing. Don't be silent. 
be encouraged and confident that God is using us, all of us, to save his people as we faithfully share this message. Let us pray and ask God to bless this word for us. Lord, we ask that you would do in us more than we think we can do by our own strength, because that's really what it's about, that we need to trust you, that we need to faithfully share this message to those who we think may never respond, and yet, Lord, you are at work. So we would ask and pray, Lord, that you would draw the people that you know to yourself, that you would give hunger for your word, that you would help us to faithfully and clearly articulate and communicate who Christ is and what he has done for us. So we ask, Lord, that you would make all of us better evangelists. None of us would, ad would admit that we are great at evangelism. We all need to grow. So we pray that you'd give us confidence to go on speaking, stay longer than we think, and keep sharing. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.